Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. William Dub Lawrence says, I was elected county sheriff of Davis County in 1974. On the 22nd of September 2008, the very SWAT team that I founded in the 1970s killed my son-in-law in my presence as I defended them to his father, his mother, and my children, promising uh, them that these men were trained and professional and knew what they were doing. A new documentary film, Police Officer, or rather Peace Officer, which premieres on Independent Lens on PBS on Monday, is about the increasingly militarized state of American police, as told through the story of Dub Lawrence, who established and trained the Utah's first SWAT team, only to see that same unit kill his son-in-law 30 years later. Driven by a sense of mission, Lawrence investigates this and other recent officer-involved shootings in his community while tackling larger questions about the changing face of peace officers nationwide. Um, Peace Officer is winner of uh, both the Grand Jury and Audience Awards for Best Documentary at the 2015 South by Southwest Film Festival. And it premieres on KUD Channel 7 here in Utah, 8 o'clock in the evening on uh, Monday. And then it airs on Wednesday and Thursday over on the World uh, Channel on KUD as well. Uh, We welcome in uh, William Dub Lawrence, who joins us for the hour. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, filmmaker Brad Barber joins us as well. Thanks. Hi, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you, along with Scott Christofferson, were the, are the filmmakers, producers, cinematographers here. That's correct. Uh, Brad Barber, uh, just to give a little bit of your uh, biography, um, you uh, were raised in Tennessee, uh, got into film, attended USC, where you received your MFA, um, and uh, understand that you're Shorts and feature film work have been shown in film festivals, art museums around the world. Currently work as an independent filmmaker professor in Provo. Yeah. So that's a kind of a, a thumbnail sketch there <laughs> of, of, your, of your work. Um, so how did, how did Peace Officer uh, come about, and how did, how did you get connected up with uh, Dub Lawrence? So uh, Scott Christofferson, uh, who directed the film with me, he was actually playing in a City League softball game with Dub's son, Dave Lawrence. And uh, Dub approached him after the game uh, and asked him if he could help him edit some video footage that he had gathered. Uh, Scott went over to his hangar where Dub had basically taught himself how to, how to put together um, a video sequence. He showed him about two hours worth of uh, surveillance or uh, dash cam footage and news footage and other things he'd put together in kind of a presentation about this very complex um, case involving his son-in-law and, and the eventual death of his son-in-law at the hands of the, the different SWAT teams and police officers up there. And Doug, Scott was obviously really intrigued, and a few weeks later, a few days later, I don't remember how long, Scott ended up working on a uh, short documentary that I was doing, and we were uh, driving from Salt Lake to Oregon on a long drive, and he told me all about this man, Dub, that he had met, and Dub's incredible story, and that drive there, it's about a 12-hour drive up and back, and that's pretty much all we talked about the entire time was this incredible story. And uh, by the time we got back, we really wanted to move forward and try to make a, a film about it. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting way into this very complex uh, topic of police and militarization. Uh, Deb Lawrence, I want to hear your story, but I want to uh, hear the trailer for the film first. This sets up uh, some of the, the themes. I was a witness to a homicide. On the 22nd of 
September 2008. The very SWAT team that I founded in the 1970s killed my son-in-law in my presence. I went over it and over it in my head because it didn't make sense the way it went down. There were officers everywhere. I kept telling them, let me talk to Brian. I know I can calm this situation down. They said, absolutely not. They were in control, and they were going to handle the situation. The police are creating these circumstances. They're creating the volatility. They're creating the violence. They're creating the very thin margin for error. Premise that the cops are becoming more like the military. It is false. It's really me as a sheriff preparing a deputy with all the tools that I can give him to go into a situation where there's a high probability somebody will get shot. Police officers are receiving military weapons and equipment. And when you dress them up and you give them that mindset, it's not a surprise that they start acting in a militaristic way. make a mistake and shoot someone who isn't really a threat, they're always forgiven because it's the volatility of the situation. People on the receiving end of these raids aren't given that consideration. Whiskey 7, we're at 3268. Jackson, we got shot fired. We got officer hit. I need medical. I need additional units. I don't believe that for one minute Matthew knew that it was the police that was breaking into his home. There's no doubt in my mind that he knew exactly what he was doing and who he was firing at. These guys need to go home at night with their families just like the rest of us do. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Two people dead over what? What were they protecting us from? As I began to piece together the puzzle, it became an obsession into trying to find the truth. Why? Why did this happen? Who's making these decisions? The objective of our entire profession is to bring peace. Sometimes peace is purchased with violence. That's the trailer to the film. We're talking about Peace Officer, and we have with us uh, Dub Lawrence and uh, filmmaker Brad Barber. Uh, so, Dub Lawrence, uh, you, you have a fascinating background. You were, the, I think, the youngest sheriff elected in Utah at the time, 29 years old. You elected in 1974 there in Davis County. Yes. Um, I think I've seen about the half a century of evolution of uh, the events that brought us to where we are. So, I think, if I can comment on the, the trailer, yes, uh, it's a good example of the variety the genius of these filmmakers in being able to touch almost every perspective imaginable in this film. The voices that you heard on the uh, in, during the course of that uh, trailer, it's uh, everyone from the parents of uh, uh, Jared Franklin, who was killed in Ogden in that raid, uh, to uh, we have we have police officers and prosecutors and ACLU and uh, officers who were. Uh, actual part of the task force that uh, um, made that raid and and participated in that. Their voices are recorded and, and included, then their personal stories are told as they uh, explained uh, their perspective. 
Uh, I mean, it's it's such a variety. Uh, Scott and Brad did such a tremendous job in being able to uh, tap into almost every resource available and with people that normally uh, you can't get in a film um, because of protocol and policies and procedures. Uh, It's very unusual to be able to get the the whole story, all sides from every angle, and I think that's the the, the remarkable uh, compliment that we've received everywhere we've been with that film that is so balanced. It presents every side and every viewpoint imaginable. And then uh, a lot of the truth that we never learn generally in cases like this actually come to the surface and we're able to see all these different angles and perspectives. And I, I can't say enough uh, uh, complimentary words to Scott and Brad and Rennie and, and Micah and David and all the others who put their, their genius together and came up with this uh, remarkable uh, masterpiece of a, of a documentary film. And uh, we're grateful for the recognition and the opportunity that it's given us to have a dialogue that is much more elevated than anything we've seen uh, here before. I'd like to take you back, and you have a, as I said at the beginning, you have a unique perspective on this. You you come from, a, I think, a line of police officers. I guess that's what you wanted to do. And when you got elected as, as that young sheriff, uh, I think you went to study other departments, right? And you brought in the, you founded that first SWAT team. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, uh, it was in the early 70s. I worked as a, well, actually, I got out of the Marine Corps in 1969. It was. Uh, I went into the Marine Corps in '67, right at the height of the Vietnam conflict, and my brother and I were both in the Marine Corps at the same time, '67, '68, '69. And when I uh, got out of the Marine Corps, I came west from North Carolina to uh, Utah to finish up my degree at uh, at BYU, and uh, I, I ended up marrying a girl from Wyoming, and and uh, ended up in Bountiful, uh, and one of the first jobs I had was uh, uh, as a police officer with Bountiful City Police Department. So uh, I went from Bountiful City Police Department uh, to the Sheriff's Office, uh, and uh, I ran a, a successful election in 1974, and at that time, there had been a lot of things happening across the country that were much more violent and different. Uh, the Watts riots in the 60s, the, you know, there were shootings from in Texas where, uh, as I recall, a Marine actually, a good rifleman, trained rifleman on a tower that killed a number of people. And uh, it was a very difficult for officers that were ill-equipped or not expecting or trained to deal with that kind of situation. Uh, and then, we, of course, we had the uh, the Patty Hearst era, you know, with the, uh, we had the Black Panthers, we had the Sindhianese Liberation Army, we had, we were seeing things that were totally different and different locations across the country. Uh, and I, I went down to California and, uh, with LA County Sheriff's Office and LAPD and, and I worked with them and got ex- exposed to some, uh, incredible, uh, capability that we didn't have. And I, I thought at the time that it was, it was uh, needed. And uh, in case we ever had a, a hostage-taking situation, or an active shooter, or a, you know, a, a group of people, it's, it's like I've got nearly 
200,000 people who live in Davis County that I could deputize and I could get uh, civilian weapons or, or whatever. But I basically thought it was appropriate, you know, to be trained for whatever situation that we might encounter um, and to be trained and professional. And most of our efforts were spent on uh, hostage negotiation uh, and negotiating and neutralizing and diffusing and and so we, our policy back then was um, if we failed and either an officer got hurt or a civilian got hurt uh, or we had to take a life, it was considered a failed operation. And we used that uh, training and to neutralize. We, we diffused a number of, of uh, life-threatening situations without anybody getting hurt or killed, and we served thousands of warrants without either a civilian or a... Uh, but we didn't do it with the SWAT team. We, we didn't serve warrants back then with the SWAT team. We, we had a, a, a civil department, and we had uh, officers, uh, uh, 57 men and women, who were uh, serving warrants, and we didn't kick in doors in the middle of the night with no-knock warrants. Or That's something that's evolved since the early 1980s, with the war on drugs and the war on crime and mm-hmm. tough on crime and three strikes you're out and war on terror. I mean, we've become quite a, quite a fear. Uh, fear is a, is a very big factor in our society. We become more polarized. We become more uh, divided, uh, us versus them mentality. So the evolution over, over the 40 years or so that I've observed since becoming a law enforcement officer uh, it's, it's systemic, I believe, more so than, a, you know, mm. there are a few bad bully police officers, obviously, but there's also citizens that prove things that uh, leave the officers no choice but to exercise, you know, the power of, of the state to take a life if it's absolutely necessary as a last resort. Um, what I'm seeing in some of these cases is that with that factor of fear, with that... Uh, um, with, with the policies and protocol and procedures, uh, the officers escalate quite often to deadly force with weapons drawn and, and uh, infrared lights on people's heads and faces. And so the only thing left is, you know, from the get-go, is a loss of life if anybody does anything wrong. Uh, that that has changed considerably over the years. So and that's a long way of saying it, but and try to put 50 years into five minutes is mm-hmm. nearly impossible. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I got to take a... out of Scott and Brad that, that... were making this film. <laughs> they kept telling me, if Dub, we need to condense this. We, we only have two hours. It's going to take 25 hours. Right. Well, you know, you, you have a lot to say. Uh, I should say parenthetically before we move on, um, people will remember you uh, as county commissioner, Swellen Davis, and uh, ran for uh, Congress uh, three times uh, against uh, Congressman Jim Hansen. Um, and and now I think you you uh, you run a is it a sewage repair business? Well, yes, and uh, I I'm moving on again. Uh, that's correct. I I love people and I I love politics. Uh, my minor was in political science. My major course was in police science public administration, postgraduate work, but I really am fascinated by people and ideas. Um, I've always been in the middle of, of issues, uh, trying to find, a, uh, as 
better solutions to problems. Uh, and yes, I it was it was ironic. Uh, there had not been a Democrat elected in Davis County in 42 years. Um, so Davis County in Utah is probably the most Republican county and the most Republican state in America. President uh, uh, Reagan came to Utah, to Hooper, Utah, in Davis County, and kicked off his campaign for president. Dan Quayle came to Utah and kicked off his presidential, vice presidential bid. Because Davis County is a uh, tremendously... Uh, strong Republican uh, stronghold. And I actually won as a Democrat. <laughs> there have only been uh, three Democrats elected in Davis County in the last uh, 75 years. <laughs> so uh, J. Dale Holbrook was elected county commissioner. Um, uh, there was a county attorney, uh, J. Duffy Palmer, and then William J. Dub Lawrence was elected sheriff. You know, so yeah. there's been a sheriff and a commissioner hmm. and, a, and a, an attorney. And uh, they, we all have been uh, one term. <laughs> yeah, that's the, 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 the. So I was elected as a Republican. Or excuse me, as a Democrat, and then I came back ten years later and I ran as a as a Republican, and defeated the chairman of the county commission, uh, and I served as a county commissioner. And then I, of course, I ran against a formidable, uh, very uh, powerful, popular candidate, uh, Congressman Jim Hansen. I tried three times during his 26 year, 28 years he was in Washington. Uh, I tried three times, but I was unsuccessful. Jim was just mm-hmm. too, too popular, too well known, and too well liked. So mm-hmm. I had a wonderful experience and learned a great deal of. of uh, I got a lot of information, a lot of, a lot of training, a lot of uh, knowledge. I, my learning curve was fairly steep. Um, and but yes, I love politics. I love people. I love uh, uh, trying to find good logical, reasonable solutions to problems, and and solving crimes, uh, investigating crime scenes, uh, fatal traffic accidents, uh, helping insurance companies, law firms, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board with airplane and helicopter crashes, uh, helping the Federal Aviation Administration, uh, and uh, it's, it's just been a fascinating uh, uh, kind of a hobby or obsession I've had for nearly half a century. Yeah, a very very interesting uh, career, which which continues, of course. Uh, Brad Barber, I wonder it, approaching uh, a topic with, with so many facets and so complicated as, as police militarization. Um, and you you talk to a lot of people on all different sides of of, of this issue. What's your main goal uh, going in here? You, you, you're are you taking a side? What what are you trying to do? You know, there's a lot of documentaries that do sort of take a side and that do advocate for something really specifically and and ultimately kind of end up, you know, just preaching to the choir. And Scott and I were primarily interested in Dub and his incredible story. I mean, that's we really didn't come in with an agenda uh, to prove either way. We didn't really, you know, grow up thinking about this issue. Um, The only connection we had actually was uh, Scott's grandfather was in law enforcement. He was the special agent in charge in Utah for years for the FBI. So, you know, if anything, we had some affinity um, for law enforcement. And it, you know, as we follow Dub, and, and I think it's fair to say, you know, we, like Scott, I'm sorry, like Dub mentioned earlier, we do look at, you know, all points of view. We try to talk to everybody that would talk to us uh, but, you know, naturally we gravitate a little bit towards Dub's point of view. And I think, as you can tell, Dub also has a very kind of fair-minded point of view. He's not out to, uh, you know, 
criticize law enforcement for the sake of it or to um, you know tear them down. On the contrary, I think he and and by extension, uh, Scott and I want to see law enforcement succeed, you know, and do what it does best and, and uh, serve and protect us. And I think, you know, audiences are smart. We, you know, they don't need to be talked down to. They don't need to be preached to. We can just present things as close to reality as we can and, and let them make up their own minds. I want to get into some of the history uh, as well. And uh, let's take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I want to set up... Uh this very uh, sad uh, uh, incident. Um, Dub Lawrence's son-in-law, Brian Wood, was was killed in a, a standoff with police. Some controversy there. Uh, Brad Barber, you, I don't know if it's you, you were Dub got. Uh, it, it's very riveting. You got. Uh, you, you can see it through the. Through, I guess the police cameras, the, the the uh, you know the, the police audio. Uh, you were able to get access to all of that. Yeah, and that that actually really was Dub. Dub got okay. access to mm-hmm. that and had access to it uh, through Freedom Information Act and and uh, uh, Grandma requests here in Utah before we even met him. Uh, when he first talked to Scott that day, he kind of already had this amazing you know treasure trove of images and video of uh, of that day, uh, what happened to his son-in-law. So yeah, Dub Dub got all that. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we will uh, we'll talk about that. This this brings it forward. Uh, Deb Lawrence uh, founded the first uh, SWAT team in Utah. And then 30 years later, horrible irony, uh, uh, SWAT teams involved in that uh, standoff, and, uh, and Brian Wood was, was killed. Uh, this, I believe, was in 2008. We'll hear some, uh, hear some audio, especially riveting audio, um, from, uh, from Brian's uh, father. Um, gets us into... The, some of the systemic problems that Deb Lawrence was, was talking about. Uh, more following break. Did you know that a child doesn't need to specialize early in a sport to become an elite player? Parents and coaches may believe their child needs to pick one sport and stick with it from the beginning, but early sports specialization doesn't necessarily make a child a star player later on. So much about the child's adult body size hasn't been determined yet, and the child's adult height and body shape will influence what sport she is best suited for. When young athletes are starting out, it is healthy for them to experiment with different sports. When they do, they are able to get the exercise, social interaction, and fun that attracted them to sports in the first place. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services. Committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Interesting film is out. It's called Peace Officer, and it uh, gets at the uh, complicated issue of police militarization through the fascinating story of uh, Deb Lawrence, uh, who was uh, the youngest elected sheriff uh, in Utah at the time. 1974 is when he was elected, 29 years old. It uh, took office in 1975, and uh, one of the first things he did was to found Utah's first SWAT team. Uh, then over the years, SWAT teams became uh, uh, caught up in this uh, the war on drugs and uh, increasing police militarization. And uh, many are saying that uh, this is a systemic problem 
which puts not only citizens but uh, police officers in just a very bad uh, situation. Uh, we're talking about it on the program today. You can call and uh, join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Then there's a twist, of course, to this uh, story. Um, the, the, the founder of Utah's first SWAT team, then uh, 30 years later, sees a, a SWAT team involved in a standoff with his son-in-law. His son-in-law is killed. Uh, by police. So we're talking with Dub Lawrence and with filmmaker Brad Barber and hearing clips from from the film. Uh, so Dub Lawrence, this is, uh, of course, a tragic event in, in the life of, of, of your family. Um, I wonder if you'd tell us uh, a bit about this. Uh, Brian Wood married your daughter, Liz, and uh, this is 2008. Um, Brian and Liz get into a fight. And Brian calls nine one one, I believe, and then and then goes out and gets in his truck and just sits there in in I guess in the driveway of the home. How did things proceed from there? Well, um, first of all, Brian was a fireman with Farmington City, and uh, the fire department and the police department was right across the street from their home, and uh, Brian uh, and Liz were. Uh, very uh, had lots of friends uh, in the police department and the fire department. They were in the same building, and Brian volunteered to let the officers practice with their new taser gun. They, he let them tasing with their with their new fifty thousand volt taser gun. Uh, he they had barbecues. They went uh, elk hunting. They they water skied. They did all kinds of you know uh, things together. So there was quite a uh, Brian and Liz had been married about eighteen years and. Uh, they had a, a ten-year-old son, and uh, Brian was uh, an EMT. He loved working, uh, rescuing, uh, working with the fire department, uh, accidents and fires, and he he loved that job. And he also worked with me uh, in my pump business that I had created. And so we were scheduled on that fateful day, on the 22nd of September, 2008. Uh, we were supposed to be putting in a lift station, a sewage ejector lift station for the city of Hennifer. And we actually had started it on Friday before, and Monday morning, uh, Brian didn't show up for work, and I waited and then headed up I-15, and uh, my wife called and said that the police were at Brian's house. And uh, so I took the Farmington exit and arrived at the scene about seven minutes after Brian had called 911. Um, there were only two or three officers there uh, uh, initially uh, that came across the street, you know, to uh, confront Brian. They they took positions in the in uh, the street behind the vehicles and the tree uh, at the mailbox. And Brian had moved into the to his vehicle, and his father had come out. Uh, his father had come also. Uh, he, he was there ahead of me. Um, and uh, he had actually been on the phone with his father uh, as as soon as he called 911, his dad, the phone rang and it was his dad. So they were on the phone, and part of the film includes that phone conversation and his 911 call to the police, um, and it, it kind of explains that story. Uh, but Brian came out of the house, got in his truck, and his dad followed him out and tried to talk him into settling down and trying to fix Get some idea what's happening, and Brian rolled the window up and revved up the engine and 
turned the radio up loud, and uh, and then he had called for the police, and the police came across the street, and uh, Brian, then with his dad there, uh, he rolled the passenger side window down and touched off a, a thirty-eight caliber bullet into the plywood of, of a trash trailer right next door, right next to the uh, passenger side of the vehicle. And when that happened, obviously the officers took court cover uh, behind a tree and their vehicle in the street. And uh, uh, Brian wanted to keep him off the property, and his dad was trying to get him to calm down and settle down. And so it was a, a pretty obvious meltdown, um, uh, psychological problems, uh, uh, depression, uh, discouragement, frustration, uh, a buildup of some six months of animosity between him and a, and a couple of the officers and firemen. Um, uh, and it, uh, he basically uh, invited them to come and expected uh, Farmington officers to respond. But instead of Farmington, it was also a deputy sheriff from Davis County. And within about seven or eight minutes, uh, there were 11 officers at the scene. And then uh, it just escalated from there. Uh, when he fired the shot, of course, the first thing that comes over the radio is shots fired, shots fired. And uh, and then the police department called for the SWAT team. And within, uh, by, uh, and Brian refused to get out of the truck, obviously, refused to surrender. And, and the police officers forced uh, his dad to move away from the truck. And, uh, and so Brian, once he cooled off and uh, had communication with him, uh, he wanted to talk to his dad after he settled down, and they wouldn't let him. He wanted to talk to uh, one of the officers. It was a friend from high school, and uh, they wouldn't let him. Uh, he wanted to talk to another officer with Farmington, and they wouldn't let him. And so basically they uh, took charge and used uh, uh, several different tactics to uh, keep him uh, isolated and, and contained. By noon, they had 46 SWAT officers surrounding him within 50 feet, so he was totally contained and uh, only had the gun pointed at himself from that point on. And uh, it, he just he stayed there, and every time he would attempt to surrender or get out of the truck or uh, they would initiate another assault of some type, uh, they... They used a lot of tactics. They practiced with their robot, you know, get, you know moving the robot. They they came into the house, uh, you know, commandeered. You know, they, they got one of the police officers had entered the house in the back through the fence, and uh, after the house was vacated, um, and opened the door f- from inside and let the SWAT team in, and they they kicked out the screens and and uh, opened windows in the kitchen and the living room from the house, so they had. Advantage from 20, 20 to twenty-five feet, uh, looking right into the vehicle from the side. So they fired uh, uh, less than lethal weapons. They shot him with a forty-millimeter gas round that you know, they, they threw flashbangs, blew out the windows. Um, he was upset that they damaged his new truck. You know, he flipped him off, and they shot him with a, you know, from twenty-six feet with with. Um, less lethal rounds. And so Brian was struck uh, numerous times with weapons, and every, the more they assaulted him, you know, the, the less likely it was that he, that he would settle down and, 
And uh, so I was very devastated and disappointed as I watched and observed. Uh, they kept most of that from us. Uh, we were kept several hundred feet away to 348 feet from is where I was positioned. Uh, let me, let me, uh, uh, Dub uh, Lawrence. Let me, let me uh, pause you right there. We'll continue the story. We, I want to uh, fit in a caller here. Um, Veronica in Teasdale has uh, called us. Uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Glad you called. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just have one comment, and that is that um, thirty years ago, the American public was not awash in assault weapons and handguns and and uh, various firearms. So the police at this point don't have any idea what kind of firepower they're going to be confronted with. And uh, personally, I think uh, we are all under the thumb of the NRA, and we need to get realistic about the firearms that have uh, flooded this country. I'll take my answer off here. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Veronica. So I think uh, if I could characterize the comment there, the militarization of the public as well through, you know, flooded with, with weapons. Uh, I don't know, uh, Deb Lawrence or uh, Brad Barber, if you want to comment on Veronica's comment? Uh, Brad, you want to start? Well, she brings up a, a, a good point that the the presence of guns in homes is definitely part of how law enforcement see the need to arm themselves more. Uh, and that there's there's a debate that could be had about even with that threat out there the tactics that are used um, especially with how SWAT teams are deployed to serve search warrants I think that's something that surprises a lot of people we tend to think of SWAT teams as only being deployed when there's an active shooter or hostage taken um, and of course we need SWAT teams for that but in 80% of SWAT deployments the most recent study 80% of SWAT deployments were just to serve a search warrant. Uh, only 7% were for hostage-taking situations or someone with an active shooter. Now, uh, the caller, you know, you might might still suggest that somebody in the home, you know, on the other side of a search warrant could have a, an, a, an automatic machine gun. That's certainly a or an assault rifle. That's certainly a, a good point for us to think about in, a, in an entirely different film that that could explore that issue of of how the presence of more guns and more assault rifles, you know, affect our society. Um, what would you say, Dub? Well, uh, the, the caller has a, a very valid point, and it's, it's a national discussion, uh, and it's very emotional on both sides, and it, it actually has polarized our country in, in, uh, uh, in, a, in a very profound way. Um, she, her point uh, is very consistent with what I did as a law enforcement officer as a county sheriff, um, I upgraded the types of weapons that we were using um, because of the kinds of dangers we were facing. Uh, the SWAT team was uh, certainly uh, an upgrade, uh, equipped with weapons that police officers normally hadn't been equipped with before that time. Uh, but it was very uh, strictly uh, monitored and controlled and for a specific purpose uh, in those kinds of cases. Uh, where there is a, an active shooter or a hostage situation, any of those would require someone who is well-trained who can shoot accurately at 100 or 200 yards uh, with a kill shot uh, uh, with with weapons that are capable of doing that, and as well as uh, uh, firepower from other sources uh, and training that would allow 
the officers to neutralize and defuse the situation if possible. There are situations where you can't stop a, uh, a determined criminal who is set upon just killing as many people as possible with as big a weapon as he can get. And unless someone is present to counter that with something uh, to stop it, uh, they could keep on indefinitely. We've got you know, little children in schools. We've got uh, theaters. We've got people who are mentally ill. They, nobody who does something like that is stable. I mean, we've got a problem with with individuals who who commit crimes that are unimaginable. Um, and in those rare cases, uh, and they seem to be more and more frequent, and we're getting uh, more and more frustration in our society because of so many injustices. And I, I really, I take issue because of the years of, that I spent on both sides. Um, I take issue uh, with uh, the NRA, uh, where uh, it appears that uh, a lot of kooks, you know, are flaunting uh, weapons, uh, weapons that are dangerous. Uh, I don't like the idea of people walking up and down the street demonstrating with AK-47s just to, just to get a rise out of the police or just to, you know, to disturb the neighborhood or reach the peace and have women who are taking their little children to the elementary school down the street in the direction which some of these nutcases are walking. Uh, we don't have... Uh, a clear understanding of what the law is, first of all. And so we've got people out there with cameras that are trying to goad or to uh, uh, get the police to do something on film that they can put on YouTube. Uh, but back to the, the caller's uh, issue of, of the NRA, I also have problems uh, with people who are trying to disarm America. Uh, and uh, take guns away from the citizens of the United States because I took an oath and, and I, I swore to obey, support, and defend the Constitution of the state of Utah and the Constitution of the United States. And it cannot be any more clearly stated than in the Second Amendment hmm. to the Constitution. And it clearly states, you know, that. Uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, we've been gradually infringing upon that right until today. It's a debate. It's an argument out there, just, just like the, the kind lady you know, who called in um, states uh, very accurately. It's, it's a, an issue worthy of an elevated discussion. Uh, we can talk about it. We can maybe change the Constitution, and an officer wouldn't be uh, required then to uh, enforce the law or to abide by the Constitution he's sworn to enforce. But as long as that is the supreme law of the land, it's a non-debatable issue for me. Mm -hmm. uh, right. People have a right to keep and bear arms. And as sheriff, when I was sheriff, I was the one who issued weapons permits to my uh, to citizens, citizens of Davis County, and the chiefs of police also could issue the weapons permits, permit, uh, that's permit to carry a concealed weapon. And today, our law lawmakers have changed that, and the legislature has given that power to the state to regulate that. And by regulating, Utah becomes actually the first state in the union to abridge or to uh, 
violates the Second Amendment. And, and so over time, uh, I have to give you a reference. That's the sixth article, the sixth section of the Utah State Constitution adds a clause to that Second Amendment that gives the state of Utah legislature the right to regulate the use of firearms. So me... Utah didn't trust the federal government. We had to give up two or three things when we became a state in 1895. Right. So with that... Uh, the caller's point is well taken. It's a good argument and a good point of view because there has been an escalation of violence in this country. Let me uh, I go back over 50 years of, it, of watching it evolve, and I think we need five hours to, yeah, to right, answer that right. question. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting point. As, as uh, Brad said, that's uh, perhaps another film. Um, I want to, uh, before we go to another break, then we have another uh, couple of clips in our last segment. Um, I want to hear, uh, have us hear from the film. This is uh, Jerry Wood, Brian's uh, father, and it gets us into, I think, one of the main points, at least that I'm hearing the film, is uh, it's a system that's been set up, um, militarization, which has caught up, if I can characterize what it's, uh, several people in the film have said, caught up police and, and civilians. Um, and and the, this clip kind of gets us into that. This is the, the standoff which led to uh, Brian Wood, Dub Lawrence's uh, son-in-law, uh, being killed uh, by police. And this is uh, Jerry, uh, his father. I was told that the Davis County District Attorney um, relayed the message to him that he had committed five felonies and that he would be spending the next 20 years in prison. To try to calm the situation down by telling him he had already committed five felonies and that he was going to spend the next 20 years in prison. Uh, it didn't seem to me to be a very tactful position. I kept telling them, let me talk to Brian. I know I can calm this situation down. They said, absolutely not. They were in control and they were going to handle the situation. All of a sudden, you see this mentality of aggression that is just overwhelming. And once this machine started going in that direction, there didn't seem to be any way to reverse it, change its direction, or slow it down. It seemed to go into more of a military operation at that time. The SWAT team decide to force him out of the vehicle. They run all the way up to the tree within four feet of the window and toss a flashbang that blows up right on by the mirror and shoot three rounds of gas into the back seat area. Brian then gets out of the vehicle and from 3.30 in the afternoon, he stands right here with a phone to his ear and a gun to his head. Why? Why did this happen? Who's making these decisions? So it's a very poignant uh, from Brian Wood's uh, father. I'd like to uh, jump, uh, we'll delete the break here and uh, continue going here. I'd like to hear a couple of clips back to back. This will be about uh, four minutes uh, total and then uh, get some some comments uh, end up uh, probably being final comments from our guests. Uh, let's hear first from uh, a variety of voices here about the escalation of uh, police militarization. Um, and I believe we'll hear from Kara Dansky from ACLU, Elizabeth Beavers, also hear the voice of... Uh, Prominent voice on this, uh, Radley Balco. And then we'll hear a couple of sheriffs who will be pushing back on this idea of police militarization. We'll hear uh, Davis County Sheriff uh, Richardson and uh, 
Uh, Salt Lake County Sheriff uh, Jim Winder. Armored military vehicles are all over Utah. This steel Bearcat is at the Davis County Sheriff's Department, but used around the region. Sheriff Todd Richardson says the vehicles like these are used to protect officers, not to intimidate. You have kind of this perception out there that uh, it's uh, the militarization of law enforcement. It's really me as a sheriff asking a deputy to go into a situation where there's a high probability somebody will get shot. And me as a sheriff preparing that individual with all the tools that I can give him to keep him safe to go handle that situation. And that's, if you want to call that militarization, then that's, that's what it is. The premise that the cops are becoming more like the military, it is false. In fact, it is a altered reality. The opposite is true. The military has learned from the police, and it is very evident in places like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, where they've had to go into these communities and be part of the community and still function. The reality is SWAT teams save lives. Demonstrably, uh, many of our weapon systems are saving lives. The taser, great tool, vilified in many places around the country as an unnecessary use of force and overly dangerous. I personally have seen it save the lives of youth and, and others because it's uh, allowed us to not use deadly force. So our tactics, I think, have improved and, and improved the, the safety of our community. In the 1990s, Congress created a program that's administered by the Defense Department that we refer to as the 1033 program. And this is a program that authorizes the U.S. military to give away to police departments military equipment, essentially free of charge, um, to the local police departments. And that program has a built-in requirement that a police department that receives equipment from the U.S. military has to use it within one year. Police officers are receiving military vehicles and uniforms and weapons and equipment and they're being told they're fighting a war on drugs, they're being told they're fighting a war on terror. And when you dress them up and you give them that mandate and you give them that mindset, it's not a surprise that they start acting in a militaristic way. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And it stands to reason that if the federal government is giving police departments an arsenal of military weaponry, they're going to use it. Tragically, there are so many incidents of the use of deadly force across the country. What we see is just a massive, massive increase in the use and number of SWAT teams. In the late 70s, there were a few hundred SWAT raids per year across the entire country. By the early 80s, we were up to about 3,000 per year. And by 2005, we were up to about 50,000 SWAT raids per year. So you're looking at a, about a 1,500% increase since the early 80s and a 15,000% increase since the late 1970s. The vast, vast majority of that increase is not because we have had a massive increase in hostage takings or active shooter situations. In fact, violent crime is down quite a bit. It's because we started using these tactics as an investigative tool to serve search warrants to collect evidence against people suspected of drug crimes. There are certainly cases in which it's not only appropriate but absolutely necessary for the police to use some form of paramilitary weapons and tactics like hostage, barricade, and active shooter scenarios. But there needs to be proportionality. 
we've really come a long way and it's happened very gradually, which is why I think people haven't noticed and why I think there's never really been you know, any sort of public debate or public discussion about this. You know, there was never, Congress never said we're going to vote tomorrow on whether or not we should militarize police, right? It, it's been a, an amalgamation of policies that have had this kind of gradual uh, eroding effect on these principles uh, that got us where we are today. So those uh, those clips were uh, reverse of the the way I announced it, but we had first heard from the sheriffs, and then we heard from some critics of police militarization. We just have about uh, four minutes left in, in the program. Uh, first to uh, Brad Barber, um, how would you sum this up? You talked to a lot of people for this film, and you heard uh, some passions, a lot of passion arguments on all sides of uh, of this. You know, I hope that Dub's perspective as one who supports law enforcement but has also experienced the grief of being a victim of law enforcement violence uh, makes it clear that our film is not intended to polarize people towards a single viewpoint. I hope it raises serious questions that create an urgent desire to talk within our communities, talk to our lawmakers about how to make these policies across the entire system that are not that are safer not just for our citizens but also for cops. We want them to be safer, too, and not be in situations that are more dangerous than are necessary. We're all learning more about how this type of force is used in America and in Utah specifically, and we need to keep asking questions. We need to make sure there's some oversight from citizens and proper training support for law enforcement as well. They need support. And uh, so I, I just hope audiences take away some inspiration from seeing a citizen like Dub take a proactive role in asking these questions, trying to work within our systems of local, state, national government, to help make you know the world a better, safer place. I don't think we can afford to be apathetic about this. And uh, we're talking about Peace Officer. Uh, that's a, a documentary film which uh, premieres on Independent Lens on PBS on Monday. On KUD Channel 7, you can uh, view that uh, Monday evening at 8 o'clock, and then it'll be happening uh, viewed on The World, which is the uh, uh, 7.2, if you're getting it over the air on Wednesday and uh, and uh, Thursday. Uh, before we uh, get some final comments from Dub Lawrence, uh, Dub, I want to hear another clip from the film. Um, and uh, this uh, this is, uh, first of all, we'll hear from uh, Dub Lawrence's wife. It uh, talks about how uh, Brian Wood's uh, death affected Dub Lawrence and, uh, and, and why he's uh, into the investigation that, uh, that he is now. Um, so we'll we'll get to that uh, clip in uh, in just a, a second, but before we do, uh, Dub Lawrence, um, you uh, you're also investigating uh, you know cases like Matthew David Stewart and uh, Daniel Willard. Uh, this has become a, a, a real obsession with you. Well, in the last eight years, I've looked at very closely reconstructed some 29 cases. Um, of those 29 cases, five of them uh, have been problematic, where they probably, in all likelihood, and the physical evidence confirms and shows uh, quite clearly that uh, they were botched, and the people who died did not need to die because there were other alternative solutions that could have neutralized or diffused without the loss of life on either side. Uh, and so, both sides. I've, I've seen officers killed, investigated those. I've seen civilians killed, uh, and all unnecessarily. So the reconstruction process uh, helps me to learn the truth, and that's what's missing. Uh, things are redacted or kept from the public. Uh, you can't get access to records that would, uh, would let the public and everyone know the truth about what happened. It took us two years and seven months to get the footage we used in, 
in Brian's case, uh, and it took a lot of effort and energy to get that. So we need more transparency. We need a lot of things. But the thing I want to make sure that that, uh, your listening audience understands is these gentlemen who put this film together, I think that the the beauty of it, um, the thing that is so incredibly wonderful is that there's so many people who articulated so beautifully their viewpoint. And it raises the level of dialogue to the point to where we can approach this with reasonable, um, good judgment and find uh, common good solutions rather than running uh, legislators, lawmakers running to the, you know, to pass legislation while emotions are flaring and little children are killed in schools. And we make we make decisions and we make laws that officers then are forced to obey and enforce uh, that are contrary to the fundamental principles of our supreme law of our land. That's where I've I've come to in my analysis. Uh, of the cases that I've looked at, and the Matthew David Stewart case is a perfect example uh, of misinformation, uh, things that happened during the course of that that misled a lot of people uh, from the truth. And when we get the truth and see the truth and find evidence and to prove it and show it in the film, um, I think um, there's a lot more that to bring the whole truth and nothing but the truth to the surface. And uh, we we do need to, as a, as a people, we need to know what our government employees are doing, and we need to know how to vote. You know, by having the you know the truth, so we can elect people who are honest and and good uh, elected officials to carry out the law with uh, with fidelity and, and do what we need to do as a nation to to keep us a, a, a free and and a prosperous nation. We, we've, we've been on the wrong track for several years, I think. Let's, um, we need to get back on the right track with all the help we can get from the smartest and, most, and brightest and most intellectually astute people we can get. Yeah, yeah, especially good comments during the political season here. Uh, let's uh, let's close the discussion here with this uh, clip from the film that I that I was talking about earlier. This is uh, Dub Lawrence's wife, first of all, talking about how this has affected him, and, th- and then a very poignant comment uh, by Dub Lawrence uh, at the end. Let's hear this. I work a lot. You know, I use every day uh, doing everything I can uh, to stay busy, to stay occupied, because work is my that's my medication, that's my therapy. I would term it obsessive. And I think the obsession is more with trying to make wrong things right. And obsession is probably a good word. And I just recognize it as that. And so I'm fine as long as, as long as he doesn't need me to be there with him. But I think he has a very keen sense of being fair. Everyone should abide by the law in the same way. The proudest act that I've ever committed as a police officer was in 1972. This central Utah city of 27,000 people is so honest that when a police officer breaks a traffic law, he makes sure that he gives himself a ticket. Or at least that is what policeman William Lawrence did after he parked his patrol car near an ice cream parlor and walked in to order a milkshake. A woman told him he had illegally parked We get citations for such violations, she said. 
You're right, Mr. Lawrence replied and walked outside and wrote himself a parking ticket. That kind of set a tone for my whole entire police career. I am obsessed with the idea of peace officer being a trusted friend, a qualified, trained um, peacemaker. Um, and that's possible. That's a good place to end the conversation. By the way, Deb Lawrence was reading a, a column that he clipped out. Uh, Paul Harvey, I think, uh, with that incident where, where he wrote himself a, a ticket. Uh, and that gets us to the title of the film, Peace Officer. Uh, and that is uh, a, a documentary film which is premiering on Independent Lens on PBS on Monday. You can uh, see it on KUED Channel 7 here in Utah, 8 p.m., on Monday, there are subsequent uh, showings of the film on KUED over on the World uh, Channel, uh, Wednesday and Thursday. And we've been talking with uh, Dub Lawrence. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been very kind to me. And uh, filmmaker Brad Barber, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Great to talk to you. And thanks for listening today. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.